The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and today we're going to talk about food. Part of being embodied is food, eating, being conscious of what we put in our mouth. And I also think there's a wonderful component to cooking that also enhances that mind-body-spirit connection. I think of food as love, and when we cook food and we eat food, it's really important to be mindful and to enjoy it. And a lot of women I work with have issues with food. I think it's often uncommon to find women that don't go down that road where there's a food issue. And so one of the things I love to do with women is to help them love food and enjoy food. I grew up in a food home. I was in New Orleans as a child and My grandmother was an amazing cook, and my mother was a great cook as well, but we ate a lot of rich food in New Orleans. It was often a creamy sauce that went on everything. In my book, Feel Good Naked, I talk a lot about a typical meal in my home, which would be Brabant potatoes and crab meat au gratin and some sort of a rich dessert. So... Once I got older and started to learn about food for, for as an adult, I was pulled to really clean Mediterranean type of food, Italian food, smaller on the, you know, not a whole lot of the cream, but a lot of the love. And today I'm so excited. I live in Portland, Oregon, one of the biggest food cities in the United States. Anybody out there listening who ever reads the New York Times has seen Portland on the map as the place to go to eat. And my favorite restaurant in Portland is Nostrana. And today I have the owner and chef, Kathy Wems, who's not in the kitchen as much at the restaurant anymore because she's so busy. But I got her on the show today and I'm so excited to talk to her. Kathy Wims is a six-time James Beard Award finalist. She opened Nostrana with her partner, David West, in 2005. Prior to establishing Nostrana, Kathy was the co-owner of Portland's pioneering Italian restaurant, Genoa. 
Since then, she has helped open Oven and Shaker and Hamlet. In the course of her professional career, Kathy has studied with Marcella and Victor Hazen at their home in Venice, Italy, as well as Madeline Common at the School for American Chefs. A never-ending curiosity takes Kathy to Italy often, where she continues to make new friendships and to enjoy the complex flavors evoked by simple cooking. Welcome, Kathy Wims. Oh, thank you, Laura. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so excited to talk to you because when I go to your restaurant, Nostrana, I love to sit at the bar and eat dinner. It's um, When my marriage ended a few years ago, it was the place I would go by myself, and it felt safe and comforting and a great exercise and empowerment to go out and eat alone as a woman, and your restaurant was where I would go every Saturday night by myself with my book and sit at the bar and eat. And I was always so welcomed and comfortable there, but mostly I became addicted to your food. I (laughs) love your menu at that restaurant and I love your food and I would watch you. You were always there. You are always there. And I was struck by how peaceful and embodied you are as a woman, and then at the same time, you're this rock star in Portland, Oregon's food scene. So how do you combine being both embodied and peaceful? What, what, is, what, are, what are your tools for being in that space or place, or at least how I interpreted you? Well, Laura, that's, really, that's a really interesting question. I love what you said about coming to the bar at Nostrana, because I, I feel like I've heard that from um, other favorite customers, and I feel really proud by the fact that people feel like, and particularly women, that they can just come in and sit at our bar and be really engaged or or unengaged if they, you know, care not to be with our bartenders who are, many of them are women and many of them are men, but... It's, it feels so nice to hear that it's it's a comforting place to be by yourself, and that's what we really try for. So it's really great to hear that you said that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, often as far as, I, as, far as being sort of comfortable in my job, I think I think I've just been really lucky in that I'm I get to do what I what I love to do, which is to to feed people and to um, make them happy eating what I think is really healthy Italian food, and it sounds like you you appreciate that, and so that's really nice to hear. Well, I think one of the things that you do so magically is that you have a clean simplicity and yet a full flavor with much of the food that you offer at the restaurant. So whether it's that amazing three-ingredient sauce that I want to talk about in oh, a second. The, the made of butter sauce? <laughs> That sauce, I tried to make that. I did. I asked for the recipe, and one of your bartenders gave it to me. It tasted nothing like yours. So what it what what it's only three ingredients, correct? So this is a a, a sauce that I learned from my mentor, who is Marcello Hazan. And for um, those of your listeners out there, might know her name, and if you don't, she's kind of the equivalent for Italian food that Julia Child was for French food in America. And we call it Marcella's tomato butter sauce number three because in her first 
cookbook, she has many um, recipes for tomato sauce, and all of us associate tomato sauce and pasta with Italian food. And this one is, like you said, three ingredients. It's a can of really good tomatoes. Um, San Marzano are the best tomatoes that you can buy on the market, and they come from the foot of Mount Vesuvius um, near Naples, and they grow in organic um, um, volcanic soil, and they're super delicious. They have great acidity and a great sweetness, and so that combination of the sweetness and the acidity is what what makes them great tomatoes. The other two ingredients in the sauce are one onion that's cut in half, and um, just thrown into the pot, peeled and cut in half, and then six tablespoons of butter. And so a 28-ounce can of tomatoes, six tablespoons of butter, and this onion that's cut in half, all get thrown in a pot. They're cooked um, down until... This is really important. This is an important part that I try and tell people when they ask for the recipe. You cook it until the, the butter fat separates from the tomatoes. And what happens in this this alchemy that's going on is that you start with tomatoes that, you know, have a lot of water in them. You have butter, and it forms an emulsion. And that emulsion happens until the tomatoes are cooked down long enough that the the tomato water cooks away and concentrates, and then the fat separates. And so that's what I think when people tell me they can't make the sauce at home, I don't think they went quite that far enough. And that's really important, and it probably takes like 45 minutes to get to that point. Does that make sense? Oh, that's what I did wrong. I tried to. I, I, I thought three ingredients. I'll do this. It'll be fast. It's not fast. It's not fast. That's, it's uh, easy, but it's not fast. Ah, uh, that's a really good tip then, because I did not do it correctly, and it did not taste anything like what you serve at the restaurant, which is divine, and it is so addictive. When you taste it, you can't believe it. So your mentor really created something memorable with that sauce. It's probably her most famous recipe. When she passed away two years ago, I, it got printed so many times in, in the New York Times, and other other venues. So anyway, we we proudly serve it. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I hope you try it again at home and now, um, now I will. longer. Now I will. But I wanted to ask what you have done in your journey to get so when you go into this business as a woman, I am guessing it's not easy. You know, you're you're with mostly men. The statistics are changing. You're leading the way here in Portland for that female chef, restaurant owner identity, which is a great thing. But when you started in this business a long time ago and when you kept working your way through this business, how did you deal with the male-dominant aspect of restaurants, being a chef, being a proprietor? How, how did that work for you as a female? How did you navigate that? Well, I think, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And I... I think I had an unusual career path in that I never really worked in a completely male-dominated restaurant, and I I think that's really super unusual. I just it's just how it happened. I started in college at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, and my first job was in what we called back then a natural foods restaurant. 
are, and it was a vegetarian restaurant, and it was a lot of sort of artistic people that worked there that found cooking as an outlet to, um, to like continue their artistry when maybe they weren't realized they weren't going to be the painter or the ballet dancer or the, um, the, the music, um, student that they thought they, you know, they wanted to be, that they worked really hard, and cooking was a really creative aspect. And so I think that it's, the kitchens I've worked in have always been very alternative in that way, where where there were a lot of women, and there were a lot of, um, I don't know, I, I just want to say I've never worked in a kitchen where there was a lot of yelling going on. I, I know that that's out there, and I know that that's typical that in male-dominated kitchens and throwing pots and pans at, at young cooks, and I never had to experience that, and I, I, I can't say really why that was, but when I moved to Portland and um, I got the dream job that I probably could have ever had was in the um, groundbreaking, groundbreaking um, special occasion restaurant Genoa, which was an Italian restaurant with a seven-course prefix meal. Um, we were we were a very female dominated kitchen, and and it was very supportive. We all talked about what we like to cook at home, what we were excited about, what cookbooks we like to cook. We talked about cook from. We talked about food all the time, and and I don't know. It was very it was very supportive. So I don't. I don't know if I have a real answer to that question because I feel like I had a very unusual upbringing in the culinary world. It sounds like that. It sounds like you really were in an atmosphere that is not as typical as some that I've heard about where you do have the yelling, the male-dominant alpha, um, maybe less so now certainly than before in the 70s and 80s. But I love knowing that you had a female-inspired journey and were surrounded by a lot of females in a kitchen um, because at that time it wasn't as typical as now. Tell me this, though. So with Portland in mind, Portland, Oregon is such a big food city now. The changes have been certainly notable to me as a patron. What are your observations in the city with the food scene as of now compared to when you started? You said you moved here in the 70s, I believe. Didn't Late you tell 70s. me that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell me more about what you've noted from then till now. Okay. Well, when I first moved to Portland, and I, you know, I came by way of growing up in in a small town, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But it was, fortunately, it was a really sort of cultured university town. So um, I felt really lucky that I was exposed to, you know, a lot of really smart people. All my parents, all my friends' parents were college professors, and. Um, when I moved to Portland, it was like, oh my God, it was, it was March in 1979. It rained every day that year in March. <laughs> and those of us who are in Portland right now can, can sort of think about the weather because we've had so much snow in this last month here in Portland that none of us are used to it. And everyone seemed to hang out in really dark um, taverns with blacked out windows and drank really cheap beer and played pool 
um, all <laughs> winter long, and it just didn't seem like a food scene at all. And I had come by way of a year in San Francisco, which was like the food city in the country back then at the late 70s, um, maybe besides Manhattan. But, and then, I don't know, after about 15 years, it just really started to change, and I think there was a really important restaurant called Higgins, which is still open, Greg Higgins was a chef, and he um, pretty much in Portland like, started the movement towards um, buying locally, buying from local farms, and and showcasing um, vegetables on the menu, and he was a real mentor to me. He introduced me to a lot of the very same farmers that I work with now still at Nostrana some um, 20 plus years later. And I think that the kind of the amazing fertile land that we are here in Oregon where I remember a friend of mine telling me, oh, if you, you have a black thumb if you can't grow something in Oregon. I mean, you just really put a seed in the ground and it grows. And this, you know, this connection to amazing um, produce, fruit, vegetables is what really started the food scene here in Portland, Oregon. And I mm-hmm. think it just kept growing and growing and growing. And what about the way you see it as of today, like, do you feel that the growth is more of a um, publicity aspect versus a real passionate desire to make great food? Um, a lot of people believe these food carts are some of the best food in Portland, which would s- sort of say that the restaurant scene is not as impressive as I wish it was, like Nostrana is. But what do you think? Do you think it's more driven by the passion to be in the restaurant business or more the passion to be on the curve of popularity and being part of the Portland scene? I think, I really feel like the passion is is really what's driving everything. I mean, I have lots of um, employees, former employees that went on to open their own businesses, and many started with a food cart, and, but yet I feel like the passion was like they, they loved what they could do here in Oregon with all the, you know, the amazing um, food resources that we have, and they had their own passion, and they they thought, well, I'll go out on my own, and I can do this, and maybe the easiest way for me to do this is to, is to start with a food cart. Some people started with brick and mortar, but I, I do feel, I don't feel like there's a cynicism to the food in Portland. I think it's easy to to make fun of farm to table and, you know, like Portland is a crazy little place, like, which, you know, we, we've all seen on episodes of Portlandia, but I really feel like what's behind it and what makes it slightly crazy and goofy is that we really, we really care and we really believe that we're making fresh and healthy food, um, you know, directly from its source and, I I don't feel cynical about it at all. I I feel like you know I think it's I think it's great, and I think that's what makes Portland a really special special food city. Yeah, I love living here, and even the grocery stores are so artistic and beautiful, and 
again, the produce and that fruit, it, it really is a, such a privileged environment and a rich soiled part of the world. It, recently, when I was in Manhattan, I even was struck by how much my palate has been spoiled living here. And then there, usually I would feel that the food was off the charts better than anything I'd eaten. And this time around, I thought, you know what? I think Portland's caught up with the Manhattan food scene in terms of what the quality and taste is like. And and I'm, I go to certain places like your restaurant regularly. I visit those that I love. They've been here longer than some of the more recent ones that have opened. Um, one of the things I wanted to share with you is I went to Oven and Shaker the other night, your restaurant that's in the area of Portland we call the Pearl District. And I sat at the bar and had dinner. And at the end of the meal, I had asked a couple of people just to let me know what they thought about working there and working with you and that I would be interviewing you on my show. And I wanted you to know the feedback was so impressive. And I wanted to share it with you. Um, One of the women that worked there said that the love, the kindness, and the consistency that you offer is really pleasurable to work around and to learn from. And then the gentleman that was cooking in the restaurant wrote the sweetest note about you. and, And he said, she takes a lot of pride in the equipment there is an antique replica slicer, a gelato, a gelato machine, and a wood oven, and that she loves to support local business. We deal with about seven or eight different farms, um, companies from around the area, which she listed, and then, again, very kind and patient and knows Italian food with two exclamation points. She has very contagious confidence, which I loved, and I wanted to open that up and unpack that a little bit with you. So where did you learn your confidence? How did you get confident? Well, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, my, my growth in kitchens and who I worked with, and I think... I think I've always been lucky to work in a very collaborative environment and I think that builds confidence and I try and use that as an owner. Like, I mean, I might know the dishes I want on the menu, but, and I, you know, I might wonder like, well, why aren't we having, it's winter time, we should be having this, you know, bitter, radicchio, anchovy like amazing sauce with this and 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 yet my my cooks and my, and my chefs you know might have other things that they're thinking about would be delicious this winter and i think it's 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 collaboration and feeding off each other i think that that is what really builds a great kitchen and talking about food all the time and letting other everyone express um, their feelings about what they're excited about eating and not having, which I think is more typical in a lot of kitchens and I think it's what you were hinting at early on, is that not having a top-down um, work environment where where one person decides this is what we're doing and then the, the, you know, the people underneath are like, okay, we're, we're supporting this this person's idea of what this restaurant should be or what this business should be, but like allowing everyone from the bottom up 
to express their opinions about what they're excited about. And if people are passionate about something, that's always going to translate um, in a great way for the business and a great way for customers like you. And I feel I, I just feel that's really important. Like it's, I might have a million ideas about what I want to eat or what I want to feed my customers, but my employees have equally um, the same ideas and encouraging that and listening to that and letting that um, become infused into the product that we, that we serve, I feel like is what, is what makes restaurants special. And I feel like well, I got to enjoy that as, as an employee, and I, I want my employees to enjoy that, too, well, as I'm an owner. Well, the collaborative process must be why everyone that works for you seems so happy and content and would not want to work anywhere else. That's a really good takeaway is the idea of collaborating wherever you may work or whatever you might be working on, but to enjoy the collaboration process, which I think builds confidence in other people, as well as, as you're saying, it's it's instilled some confidence in you as well. So help us understand, um, for you, the confidence role model, I believe you are. When did that begin where you felt like a leader in your life? I mean, when you're with a group of people in a restaurant and you're working together and you're not the owner or the top chef, it's it's less of a hierarchy. But when you are now in the role that you're in and you look back at your life, and I know you just had a big birthday. I saw that on the web. Um, <laughs> you can look back now and tell us in hindsight where did you begin to feel your empowerment as an individual in the world? What age would you say that you noted, oh, I feel really good about myself? Well, I would, um, I think, you know, I think it started really early on. I mentioned that um, you can't believe the name of the restaurant that I worked at when I was in Chapel Hill, the the, the vegetarian natural food restaurant. It was called um, um, Pie Whack It. <laughs> And it was, but it was like the best restaurant in little town of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and it was a lot of really, you know, smart college-educated people that were finding, you know, their their way and figuring out what they were going to do with their life. But in the meantime, they'd gotten a job at this this restaurant, and they turned their creative um, energy um, into food and and making you know, food or dining experience and whether they were in the front of the house or the back of the house, you know, a a great thing. And I I think that 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 sort of confidence, like, grew from there and knowing, too, that if you approach any form of craft with, with a background of, like, of understanding that, well, food has food. You know, we we all we all have to eat three times a day, and and the history of food, you know, goes way way back. And embracing like some of that, and then creating from that point of view is very grounding. And I think mm-hmm. that brings a lot of of confidence to um, to what you do, and mm-hmm. anyone does. So I, I think like approaching stuff from with a background, like not just saying. 
Oh, this is uh, okay. Can I go off for a little bit, Laura? <laughs> yeah. Um, I there's a lot of I think there's a lot of um, young people um, in the food industry that see food on television, watch cooking shows, watch the competitive cooking shows on the Food Network and other things, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds fun! I want to be famous," and and. But there's no, like, background there. And I think confidence and being able to succeed comes with having the background and studying perhaps the cuisine that you want to cook or, or reading tons of cookbooks or being in a nurturing environment, a nurturing kitchen where, you know, ideas are bounced off each other and people have the you know, the opportunity to express, like, what they're excited about and conversation, you know, centers around what you're all working at. In my case, it would be food. And I just, I think that that's where confidence comes from is you, you just keep building. It's the same way confidence comes as a child in a family. If your parents, you know, beat you down all the time and say what you're saying is stupid, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you're like, oh, that's really interesting that you saw this this way, or they, oh, that's really interesting that you would like to season this this certain dish that we have on the menu this way, and and people are willing to listen to you, then real growth can happen. And and I think that's where confidence comes from. And it's a process. What you're saying is it's a process. There needs to be patience and a desire to work hard because a lot of people don't realize how hard the restaurant business is. And um, one thing I have to mention quickly is Pie Walket. I went to Chapel Hill. And you it, went to Pie Walket? <laughs> wait, I think this is so cool because I'm realizing that I probably went to Pie Walket when you were there. Oh, that's and so funny. It's when I started to appreciate what we would call then, which was like, you know, it was like hippie food. It was like, mm-hmm. um, exactly. Ah, it was so good. <laughs> and my favorite was the sandwich that had the, the sprouts and the cheese and the avocado. I and, used to make the bread for that sandwich, the poppy uh, seed, honey, poppy seed, whole wheat bread. <laughs> that was uh, one of my jobs was to make that every uh, single day. Kathy, that was my favorite sandwich, and I loved the dressing. There was some sort of a dressing on it. It was just divine. So I loved your food in the 80s, darn it, and I didn't even know it was you. That's too <laughs> cool. That is so fun that you were at Piwocket. And, I feel like um, there's, there's, there's a continuum there. Like, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, everything comes and goes, you know, and trends come and go, but I feel like that's sort of back to the earth kind of mm-hmm. late 1970s, um, what was going on in, in college towns and, you know, really embodied in Chapel Hill, North Carolina back then, you know, this sort of back to the earth thing is kind of reflected now in the, in the farm to table movement, which sounds very cliche, but what... I I like I get so mad when people say, "Oh, that's so cliche." But what's better than supporting local farms? I mean, mm-hmm. nothing is better than that. So how can mm-hmm. that be cliche? So no, I feel yeah. like that's sort of the 
the second embodiment of that and <laughs> and I grew up in that environment and I think, you know, I, I was able to really expand on it once I moved to Portland, Oregon. I mean, I remember oh. the first porcini mushroom that got sold in in Portland, Oregon was this one really great um, mushroom um what would be the word? He, he, you know, he foraged for mushrooms and he would knock on the door at my old restaurant, Genoa, and he sold the first portini mushroom to my boss at the time at Genoa, Amelia Hard, which she turned around and cooked dinner for um, Luciano Pavarotti that night and used that mushroom. So it was like pretty much the first portini mushroom that got sold in Portland, Oregon. I love that. Wow, what an evolution. Mm-hmm. That is such a great evolution in the food world, but then also the Piwocket base and groundedness where it all began with that idea in Chapel Hill and certainly a huge part of Portland eating in in the city that we live in here now. Um, Kathy, one thing I wanted to find out is what... When you go into your normal day, your work day, and this is another great... um, I think this is very informative for someone interested in the restaurant business who's not just trying to become a famous cook on TV, but someone who's really thinking about this as a career. Give us an idea of your typical day and how many hours, because I think everyone, anyone who's never been in the world of restaurants is shocked by the amount of time required. And I and I see you working at Nostrano constantly. I see you writing notes all the time. So take us through a typical workday and what this includes. Well, my typical workday, you know, has changed over my career. I'm I'm now 60 years old. I just turned 60 in, in November. And woo, woo. so... <laughs> I know. So, um, thank you. So, you know, my role has changed. I would say that a typical workday for a chef is you you come in in the, um, not the very early morning. Usually, have prep people um, that that do you know some of the basic stuff that always has to be done chopping the onions, making the certain sauces that are always, always, always on the menu. Um, Starting, you know, making meat broth for soups and and all of that, and then the head chef usually comes in, uh, you know, around mid morning, sometimes early morning, and starts to plan the menu for the day. We're unusual at um, at Nostrana in that the menu changes every single day. There's things that are always on the menu, but there's things that always change, and it's it's kind of the basis for that is because we run the kitchen as if it was a community-supported agriculture um, sort of relationship. And do you know about CSAs, Laura? Do you? Which is, I do, but you know, tell tell our listeners about CSAs. Yeah, like buying, um, like buying from a farmer and buying throughout the year and whatever the farmer has is you've sort of supported him by putting your money up front, or her, obviously, and um, and you get a box of produce, say, once a week or twice a week, and you you cook from that. And so it's limiting in a way is that you don't just call up a huge produce company and say, well, I'd like some papaya today or something unseasonal that's not in Oregon, or I'd like this mm-hmm. or that. And so it really grounds you 
with what's seasonal and, and local in your area, but also really grounds a connection between you and your farmer. And we actually cook that way at the restaurant. It's like we, if my farmers, you know, they have different things throughout the year, and sometimes it's something that might not sound particularly Italian, like, let's say, Napa cabbage or a certain kind of, of Japanese radish or something. And it took me a long time to realize, oh, that doesn't sound Italian. And so I would originally say, no, I don't need that. I'll take more arugula or more, you know, ridicule, something that sounds Italian. And then I thought, well, no, I have a relationship with that farmer. And that's what they have to sell, and that's what's growing right now. And I should figure out how to use it. So then I would figure out a way to craft the menu so that I could make this um, radish or this um, Napa cabbage taste Italian. Mm. So back to what the typical day is. I'm sorry, I, I got a little off track. Mm, it sounds like so good. creating the menu based on these <laughs> things that the farmers um, have for us and then, you know, making up, a, we call them prep lists in kitchens where it's a, a long list of what there's to do to get everything that needs to be on the menu by that night, or in our case, also lunch. And so then just going about um, helping the employees as the other cooks as they come in, um, saying, well, you know, you need to do this because this is on the menu tonight, and you need to prep this for that. And prep is a big word that you use in kitchens. And... And then until the final end of the day when you actually sit down with the um, the front of the house people and you go through what's on the menu that night and you that we do a tasting of um, all the new dishes that the perhaps the front of the house servers, waiters haven't um, tasted yet. They all get to taste that and it also allows the cooks to, you know, practice that and cook that before we actually open the door in the evening to the, you know, to the general public. So that's kind of a typical day. And then at the very end of all that, once the night's rolling and everything's going on, um, going well, smoothly, hopefully, then there's the final ordering for the next day and the, the whole thing kind of starts again. Hmm. But it's continuous. It's a long day. It's very continuous. It's it's very continuous, and you go home at night, and you 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 go to sleep, and you wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, did I remember to order this, or did I remember to tell so-and-so that there's this little trick, like, say, back to the tomato butter sauce, like, <laughs> cook it until the fat separates, um, and then it will be done, because the flavor will be concentrated. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of continuity and incontinuity that is ne- sort of never leaves your brain because you're always thinking yeah. about the next day. Thus the notepad that you always have. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would agree. <laughs> what is your favorite breakfast? Oh, God. This is so funny that you've asked this because I'm really bad about eating breakfast. But I'm trying to... Um, I'm trying to force myself to eat breakfast. <laughs> I've always just kind of got up and got going, and and I, I'm kind of a, a confirmed sleepy head, so I, I like to stay in bed as long as I can until I until I have to get up, and that <laughs> doesn't leave much time for breakfast. But I, I'm recently trying to eat something savory like a hard boiled egg with 
some, um, like a little bit of, I like crystal hot sauce, which is from Louisiana, like sprinkled on top of it or, um, or I always have a cappuccino in the morning, a small Italian sized cappuccino and mm. I enjoy that. But I, breakfast is not necessarily my, my favorite time of the day. I like lunch a lot. What is your favorite lunch? Oh, a really great salad, like a mm. composed salad that has some sort of extra special ingredients besides just um, greens. Um, there's one right now at Nostrana that is it's a kale salad. I know kale salads are very trendy right now. But we take the kale and we shred it super fine. It's called um, chiffonade in the, in the kitchen world. And then we toss it with some local um, amazing goat cheese from Briar Rose Farm in um, there in Yamhill County, and some pickled onions and and some nuts, walnuts, and a really spicy um, tomato um, vinaigrette. And mm. that's one of my favorite things to eat for lunch. Mm, I'm looking at it on your menu right now. It looks divine. Oh, good. Also, I'm so... I love soup. I mean, I never get tired of soup. And this, this snowy weather we've been having in Portland, I just made a, a black bean chili from a really, um, another, like, mentor of mine, Deborah Madison, who was the opening chef at Greens, which was a really famous vegetarian restaurant in San Francisco. I believe it was yes. still open. And... She has one of her most um, famous recipes is a is a black bean chili, and but completely vegetarian. And we made that mm. at home last night and uh. ate it in the snowy night. Oh, I love a good vegetarian black bean chili. That's such a beautiful taste to me. Do you put stuff on it? Do you put a little? I sour- did. I had. Um, an, av- I, an avocado crema, I would call it. So it's an mm-hmm. avocado cream where I took um, Greek yogurt. Here in Portland, we have the, the, the best yogurt, which is Nancy's yogurt, which is an amazing Oregon story for a business. But so Nancy's Greek yogurt that I blended with, um, with a, a ripe avocado. And mm-hmm. I had some pickled onions that... Um, we garnished the soup with some cilantro and um, what else was on it? Oh, every year I go and help a friend of mine um, harvest her olives in Tuscany in this, uh, the town of Cortona, which is a famous hill town. Um, they, my friend has 150 olive trees, and she supplies her own restaurant, Porcena, in New York City with um, her own olive oil. So anyway, mm-hmm. but as a gift for helping, I always get some of the oil, and so I drizzled that all over the black bean chili last night, and it was uh, still fresh. It had just been harvested in um, the end of October, and it had such a vibrant, amazing flavor. Oh, that sounds good, good, good. Yum. I want it now. <laughs> and healthy, what? too. I mean, and healthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing about cooking the way you do is it's healthy, but it's divine to the palate, and that is hard to do well. And I realize now, knowing your Piwak at Beginnings, I think that's where you began that idea of simple but delicious, and that's just my favorite way to eat. You know, I what think it, you've actually probably 
change my bio right here and now because I never <laughs> really, I never thought of that continuum from my from Piwacket to to Nostrana now. But I think you're right. I think it really yes. did affect how I, I how I think about food and how I feel about healthy food that can be delicious at the same time. Well, I think that's one of the neatest things about getting older, and certainly it must be a very um, notable moment at 60 is you really realize the path that you're on has been developing and unfolding for decades. And so you can see how each part of those experiences infuse the one that you're living now. And and they do go together, which gets back to the idea of patience and process for young people who are trying to figure out what their calling is and, and what their direction is. Um, I wanted to ask you about that hot sauce you referred to. I, I couldn't hear if you said... Oh, it I'm sorry. Crystal? It's, um, it's from Louisiana. And it's called Crystal, and it's Crystal. it's like Tabasco, which is actually also from Louisiana, but it's less spicy and more vinegary, and it doesn't mm-hmm. sort of mask the flavor of food. It just kind of enhances it. So I use it on a lot, particularly bean dishes, and on hard-boiled eggs, and on scrambled eggs. I usually don't have many bottled sauces in my refrigerator. I, I don't even think I have Worcestershire in there anymore. But um, it's one that I, I particularly like, and I, and I don't think it um, sort of, it has a, has a soft, spicy note without sort of overtaking food. Mm, good to know about that one. Uh, which talent, I'm curious, would you like to have that you don't have? Like what would be something, because you've had such a passion, obviously, for the food world, What what would be the talent that you would love to have that you don't possess? Oh, wow. Um, I'm not really prepared for that question. Oh, good. It's um, a spontaneous one. I just wanted to hear it. I I think, um, well, I think everyone could, I mean, I, myself, I could have more confidence. Um, I mean, I feel like I have confidence in my repertoire of Italian food, and I've studied a lot in Italy, and I've learned a lot, but I feel like there's there's always more to learn. I think I could approach food in a less art, cooking in a less artistic way and, and know more about it scientifically as opposed to more intuitive, which is kind of how I cook, that I think like knowing more food chemistry could have served me really well or could serve me in the future. Um, I think people's skills, like social skills, and I have this theory that a lot of cooks become cooks because they're, they're kind of shy and they, they want to express themselves, but they maybe don't express themselves as well socially. And the kitchen mm-hmm. is a good place to hide. Um, and if you didn't work in the kitchen and you chose to work, you know, on the dining room floor serving people, you definitely would make a lot more money. So there must be a reason that cooks become cooks, and that's sort mm. of that's one of my that's one of my theories. And I I think we kind of like to hole up and you know be with ourselves and be in our own own thoughts, and we enjoy feeding people and giving people things, but but we're not we're maybe not like 
very outgoing socially. Extrovert. You're not mm-hmm. extrovert. Extrovert. Yeah, extrovert. That's the good. That's the word. Which makes sense because you're in that kitchen for so long as a chef that being an introvert would probably serve a chef well. Um, mm-hmm. Or unless maybe the screamers are the extroverts that are in the kitchen. I don't maybe. know. Maybe. <laughs> Unfortunately, I haven't had to work with many of those. <laughs> I, I that, found out really early on that even if I did, like, even, you know, scream very quietly, <laughs> that it didn't get me anywhere. I got much better by, I got much further by sort of nurturing and, you know, encouraging employees. Yeah, that's so true in any field and with any teamwork that's required with a project or an outcome, there's no doubt that that's a more effective way to go, even when the tension is high. Um, what is the food that you hate? Fast food. Ah, uh, yeah. That uh, was easy. <laughs> that's my yeah. I hate it. I loathe it. I think it's horrible. I think it's ruining our country. I think it's, you know, making children... Um, have diabetes, early onset diabetes. I think it's making people fat. I think there's no flavor. It's all fake. There's full of sugar that we don't need. And I, I think it's horrible. And I think it's a horrible thing to put in your body. And I think it, it has to, it certainly reflects on your health, but I think it really reflects on your mental health too. Like, yeah. I, if you aren't eating wholesome, healthful food, like, how can you be a happy person? I feel really strongly about that. I couldn't agree more. And the fast food industry is so toxic. Um, I think to the to the body, the mind, the spirit, all of it. It's just a it's a bad idea. Um, tell me this though. Moving into a more favorite food sort of thought process, what would be a meal that you've had in the last year that you still think about? That would have well, been more f- on the favorite scale of food. Well, I think this is a good, um, actually, talk from talking about fast food, this is a good comparison because what sometimes we think of dishes that are classic fast food things like, say, pizza, actually, when made well, aren't at all. And I was in this beautiful little tiny town called Ercolano outside of Naples this um, this fall, and I went to a pizza pizzeria called La Parule, and the chef there experimented with all kinds of um, whole grains and different kinds of flours and made um, Neapolitan pizza that was as light as air and as flavorful as the most flavorful pizza you've ever had in your life, and I was just blown away. There were six of us that were eating there, and he chose the pizzas that he wanted us to have and he brought them out one by one um, cut, which is untraditional in Naples. You usually um, get your own individual pizza and you eat it yourself and you cut it with a knife and a fork. But he wanted us to try like six of his pizzas. So he brought one after the other and we all like had a piece and then had the next one and it was it was the pizza of my dreams. Like I'd never had pizza so great and I'd had a lot mm. of great pizza in my life. And so that was one of my, my most favorite meals that I've, I've had recently. Mm, sounds so I love a good pizza. It just sounds so good to me. Either breakfast or lunch or dinner, and in the breakfast mode, putting a little egg on it is so yummy. Oh, I agree. Um, I totally I love an egg on a pizza. 
Uh, and I love leftover pizza in the morning, too. Yeah, back to good breakfast. Let's go with pizza. Um, what would you say, as, as we have to wind down soon, I'm eager to know what your present state of mind is. How would you describe that? Oh, my God. Lord, this is a bad, this is a bad political climate to talk about that. Oh, you um, were going political with your answer, which I think a lot of people are feeling, yes. I mean, I... Um, my, I, I want to focus on the things that I can, um, that I can change and the things that I can, you know, help people with. And, and my, my strengths are making good food and serving people good food and educating people about food and, um, hopefully in the, with that, you know, making strides to protect our environment and, and keep, you know, healthy food in our, on our planet. And that, I guess that's what's really important to me right now. And, and, you know, educating people about things that are affecting our food, like climate change and, and, um, genetically modified ingredients and, and just, just, you know, keeping that knowledge out there is what I'd like to focus on the next part of my life. And I think as we go into the next chapter of these four years, there's a great comfort in bringing back the nurturing aspects of cooking and food and coming together with friends where we can share dialogue and share experiences that are more comforting, nurturing, and connect us all in this effort to rise above some of the distressful issues that we don't have control over. So going mm-hmm. to what we can control, as you say, but rising and putting even a higher priority on that sort of communal gathering and bringing together the sense of love, food, and others to be in some sort of sense of Connection, because I think connection is what we're all needing more and more, more than ever. Mm-hmm. And I think with connection becomes the nurturing that you were speaking of, and I, I think that that's how we all grow. Really, I mean, is 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 by by being nurtured and by by feeling that you know we have a place in the world and that our our thoughts and our values are respected and. And whether, you know, whether they're right or wrong, but that we have uh, the ability to express them and to be heard. Yeah, and and to say whatever that may be. And as David White says, it's the difficult conversation is the one you're not having. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Absolutely. I, That's you know, very true. It happens I, in my household sometimes, too. Yeah. It's and like I think, having oh, that conversation is, is like how you move forward. Yeah, and and what a great way to do it over a beautiful bowl of your vegetarian black bean black chili. Bean chili. <laughs> or um, I, I must say that anyone who has never been to Nostrano or doesn't live in Portland, Oregon, it's really worth it to go look at the menu online, which would be nostrana.com, N-O-S-T-R-A-N-A.com. Um, and Kathy Wems, thank you. You are a leader. You are a pioneer. You are kind and confident and very talented. And it's been a real joy to share the conversation with you. 
Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me on your show. I'll see you soon at the restaurant. And okay. as we always remind listeners, you complete you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. We'll be right back.